Hello and welcome to the Zenial Dome. My name's Gareth Gwynn. And I'm Esther Sears. And this is the podcast for Zenials or those who just want to understand them. <laughs> I, th- I think that sums it up. I think so. I think they'll soon find out that they don't really care if they understand Zenials. <laughs> So the concept of this show is that if you were born between 1977 and 1985, then you are a Xennial. It's the group of people who perhaps don't fit into Generation X or who perhaps don't quite see themselves as millennials. It's the people in in between. Yeah, basically, people born between the death of Elvis Presley and the birth of Blockbuster Video. <laughs> yeah, those those two definitely related events. Um, yeah, those it's it's that that period, um, and it seems to be the people who sort of grew up at exactly the same time the internet did. I think yeah, it's a bit of a recurring theme. Yeah, so we remember things not being digital. We remember having to use pencil and paper for most things. <laughs> And then we remember the internet being exciting. <laughs> yeah, and trying to figure it out and, and realising that this was, in fact, the future. Yeah, so. and then you say figuring it out, we have already, just in trying to do this opening link, had enough problems with my connection <laughs> to make me feel that the, the future isn't all it, it was cracked up to be. So that's the that's the concept of the show. Every week we will interview somebody uh, who fits into uh, the Xennial bracket about about what they remember from growing up in this weird period and um, almost seeing if there are any traits or things that bond this uh, group of people together beyond just the years in which they were born. I am really excited to find people like us. Yeah, that's the idea, isn't it? It's, <laughs> it's, um, uh, it yeah, it's finding what we've all got in common. And today's, our first guest, our first ever guest on the show, um, is actually someone who is also our youngest guest who we've got lined up at the moment. Um, Nish Kumar uh, was born in 1985, so he's at the younger end of the bracket. What else do we need to know about this episode coming up, Essit? What's important? <laughs> we recorded it in the middle of a heatwave. So hot. There's a lot of panting, a lot of, yeah, <laughs> a lot of exclaiming. When we first connected with Nish, I was actually worried because the sound in the background, there was this enormous buzzing sound. And that man has an industrial fan next to his desk, which he was kind enough to switch off uh, at the start of the recording. What was lovely about this episode as well is that he had so much stuff relating to being a Zaniel to hand in his room. It was like he decided <laughs> to be interviewed in a like theme room <laughs> because he had cassettes and CDs and videos to hand mm-hmm. that he could pick up and wave in front of. So there are points in this. It's It all sounds a little bit too prepared, and it wasn't. <laughs> but we'd be chatting about something, and he would just go, what, like this? And then pull it into shot. It was like being in a sort of living museum while interviewing Nish. And what you'll soon find out is that we don't like our guests to come in empty-handed. So Nish will be bringing something in with him to put in the Zenial Dome that represents his Zenialism. We'll, at the end, we'll say how you can get in touch. But if anything occurs to you during the show, feel free to email us on thezenialdome at hotmail.com. Yeah, we have got a Hotmail email address. Yeah, hang on. Let me make it clear, though. So it's capital T, lowercase h, <laughs> lowercase e, capital X, lowercase e, N N I A L. Capital D, lowercase o-m-e, at hotmail.com. Remember, if you don't get the caps right, it won't send. It will send. I tested just before we did the show. It definitely will send. (laughs) 
No, I know. But do you remember? Do you remember back in the day when emails were new and people thought that URLs and email addresses, yeah, you had to write it out properly. Yeah. <laughs> it was never the case. It, but then I think the same people who thought that were the same people who insisted on writing an address on an envelope where each line was exactly three letters indented. <laughs> anyway, let's just crack on with it. Uh, this is 1985 and Late Night Mashes, Nishkuma. <laughs> So with Xennials, are you familiar with the phrase Xennial? Let's deal with that. Did you know this micro-generation business? Yes, it's because the term has, because it's a kinder term than geriatric millennial. That's largely why. <laughs> yes. That's largely why I'm yes. familiar with it. Because yeah. once that term <laughs> started getting bandied around, I definitely felt like, can we, is there a slightly softer way of expressing this? But you've done something quite Gen X-y in producing some comedy albums. Because for me, like, I always think about, you know, Steve Martin, Richard Pryor, Max Boyce even. I mean, you're up there with with the voice at the moment. (laughs) (laughs) Like, I just found a Mort Saal album in a, like, flea market. I mean, I I bought it immediately, of course. (laughs) (laughs) But I love it, though. Like, because did you grow up listening to comedy albums at all? Yeah, so I really, and I guess this is where I get myself back into the sort of zenial millennial bracket. When I went to when I went to university, there was a, um, I think they had set it up. You know, it was like there was a period where the internet was being administrated by a generation of people that didn't understand what it was and didn't really care to. And so the university administrators set up this thing that they were like, oh, wouldn't it be great if we set up like a file sharing thing for all of the students? Like, and we have like hard drives that they can all access through the kind of Ethernet cables in there. And they'll use that to share essays. Of course we didn't. Instead, (laughs) it was just the biggest trove of information and entertainment I've ever seen. It was just films, uh, TV shows. I what I can imagine was a vast collection of pornography. I didn't even dare, I didn't even dare scratch the surface of it. But I assume it was like a horrific collection of pornography. Um, but I I just got loads of comedy albums. Like I, I the the first thing that I really got got into was I got a sort of. Um, I got. I used to. I bought the odd CD before this, but then when I got to university, they have. The, there's a Warner Brothers collection of Richard Pryor's albums that is basically the that is all of his comedy albums, pretty pretty much. I think maybe Live on the Sunset Strip is not on there, but I got all of them as albums. And so, as far as I was concerned, I saw Live in Concert, which is the the film of, uh, that he released and is available as an album. I think that's called Wanted. But then the rest of his entire oeuvre I engaged with by listening to comedy albums. It was... Um, so I, I, I the whole thing. And then I, 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 I thought that was such an exciting and accessible way to get comedy mm. um, that, you know, then I started just... I, I, I used it a lot to get American stuff. Um, you know, like the first few Patton Oswalt stand up, spe- like there was a Patton, there was a, sp- a special of his that was like, I think was like a Comedy Central one, but for whatever reason, it was hard to get hold of. It was actually much easier to get hold of the albums. 
Um, and mm. so I, with him, I had the Werewolves and Lollipops is an amazing comedy album. Um, all the early Maria Bamford stuff uh, was she, they, they, no one was making TV specials of her early stuff. It was all available as as albums. Um, and it was just a really accessible way to get hold of comedy. Um, and I think we are coming back full circle. I wonder if I have... Yes, I do have a tad. A couple of years ago, I did Just for Laughs in Montreal, and I got presented with this, which is What's a that? Tiffany Haddish comedy album on cassette. Oh, wow. <laughs> Whoa, it's amazing. That's it's coming back round. Have, have, have you listened round. to it yet? Have you, have you actually no, played it? Or do you, you haven't got a cassette player, have you? <laughs> No, I, I just to the left. I have actually recently unboxed my cassette player, oh. but for the sole for the sole reason that I could listen to this. Wow, it's incredible. What I love about it though is the fa- is the fact that you seem to have gotten into this though, like in the noughties. So when you were in university, so when would that have been? Like two thousand and five, two thousand and six, something like 2000 that. Two thousand, and I started university in two thousand four. Yeah, that was when I really started listening to stand up albums. Yeah, so so you didn't listen to it at home when you were a child. Your parents didn't have these albums. The thing that my parents had, the thing that was always playing in the, ha- the house was music. Like, my parents love, particularly, like, basically, like, 60s and 70s Bollywood music was just always on, on the radio. And my dad also had this, like, vast collection of cassettes. Like, he, like, audio cassettes. Like, and he used to, like, record them and he would handwrite all the notes on them. And so, like, that is how I first started engaging with music, was on cassettes. I actually, I don't know, I promise I've not planned this out, but I do think I, yeah. Well, last time I was at my parents' house, I found my cassette copy of, uh, this is an album called Blue For You, which is a, a greatest hits collection by Nina Simone. And, wow. like, I've copied it in such detail. Oh. Like, my, my friend, I think my friend must have had it on CD, and I've taped it. Off, so this would probably be 2000 and I reckon 2001, 2002. And yeah, it's, I, 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 last time I was at home, I went into the like drawer in my parents' house where they've kept loads of the crap that I just left in their house. And I was really obsessed with finding this tape because this anthology no longer exists anymore. So I was like, I would quite like to like recreate this on by downloading the by downloading yes. the songs so i needed the track list but the tape still works the tape's still good it's like home taping is killing music and also the only way i'm going to be able to recreate this thing yeah, <laughs> yeah. wow I, I love the fact as well because obviously no one listening to this will be able to see it but the 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 handwriting on the back of that tape, it's so neat, yeah. Nish. Like I cannot tell you, if you found my schoolwork, <laughs> it looks like the, you know, it's like, it's just anarchy. Like, it's just anarchy. Like, not <laughs> I'm not even writing in the lines, just like bits on the side. I think I've, I've got some like weird notes that I've taken here that show, yeah, this is also like not even the same pen colour. It's just like deranged <laughs> ramblings, like this sort of stuff. Oh yeah, that, it's that's, just, that's a madman writing. Yeah, it's just like yeah. the absolute work of a <laughs> maniac. Right? The symbols at the top genuinely look quite Zodiac Killer. In yeah, the, yeah. Um... It looks like absolute like Zodiac thing, and like I've written over it in pen. Like it's, but then for some reason when it came to making, I was so obsessed with cassettes. Like this is mm. my first engagement with 
music. When it came to that, I was so obsessively neat. And like, it, yeah, it's like it was weird where what brought out my need to, you know, think, oh, this should be presented orderly. And it wasn't like, oh, my schoolwork that someone is going to have to read and mark. Yeah. It was the cassette that only I will ever engage with. But which one are you being asked about in 2021? Well, I can't remember a single thing that happened at school. Yeah, no, no. I, I, I don't know a single thing that I don't. If you go, I, I, if somebody asked me what Pythagoras' theorem, I'd be like, mm, I don't know. First, do no harm. Is that one of the things? Be excellent to each other. <laughs> what kind of family did you grow up with then? Like, were they the kind of family who embraced? everything that the 80s and 90s had to offer so all the new technological developments and all the new ways of cooking food and things like this you know and the new fashions did they embrace all that they sort of embraced i'll tell you what i think a lot about i think a lot about this i remember watching an interview with someone involved in the tv show life on mars and it's something that's really stayed with me whenever i think about things that are set in period because they were saying it was set in 1973, and the first thing we realised was you shouldn't have anything from 1973 yes. in the house. Like, it ha- everything yeah. has to come from, like, 1968, because that's sort yeah. of what... And so when I think about, like, the TV that we had in our house when I was growing up, it was not, like... It was not a brand new t- It was the TV that my parents got when they got married in 1983. Like, that was mm. the, the TV, the main TV when I was a little kid in my house. And, like, you had to, like, um, you had to tune the TV. Like, it, it, oh, there were channels, yeah. th- there were little knobs with the channels. And it was like, mm-hmm. you know, and you had to make sure the aerial was in the right position. And then it was like, oh, BBC One's gone. Better read it. <laughs> you know, BBC One would just go. We'll never find out how the singing yeah. detective ends. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm trying to watch this episode of the Krypton Factor, and now BBC One has just slipped. <laughs> and so then you had to like sort of retune it. You can definitely still recreate that feeling if you stay in any premiere. <laughs> <laughs> Completely nonsensical way of numbering all the channels, and some of them might work. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> You're so. I watched. Um, I watched Threads a few years ago, and it, that is set. That is filmed and set in 1983, yeah. but everything does look very late 70s, and it just. Yeah, yeah, this yeah. all feels so genuine because they've just got. Well, it's the modern day. We just get a house. We film in a house. We film in yeah. another house. It's mm. just there's no attempt to. No one's got a Rubik's cube. No, no one's. No, no. <laughs> you know, that's all that sort of stuff. When um, I see stuff set in the nineties, uh, sometimes now you look, look, you look at it and you go, "No, that's set in like that." That's all the like cool stuff mm. from the nineties. If I try and remember what mm. the nineties looked like, what it looks like is Gary Sparrow's house in Goodnight Sweetheart. Yeah, that's what <laughs> the nineties looked like. That's like yeah. the most authentic. Yeah. Everyone's setting something in the nineties, like everybody wearing like shit, like these like pastel coloured shell suits, and just like weird grey carpet. Just that's kind of mm. what I remember. And like these sort of weirdly, I don't even know what there was a sort of certain style of patterning where it would just be shapes, just all on top of each other on people's yeah, curtains. But... And that was the thing that everyone thought was cool for a while. That's the second flat I lived in in London. <laughs> 
still had. I remember when we were living in there, we went, oh, this is the decor from Keeping Up Appearances. Like, it probably... (laughs) That's what I remember the 90s looking like. Keeping Up Appearances, Goodnight Sweetheart. That's in the same way that I assume all the 80s just took place in Del Boy's living room. I feel very much like the 90s is very much like the Bucket residence and the uh, yeah. the Sparrow's house and Goodnight Sweetheart. It feels similar to, you know, when you talk about, um, oh, if you, if you lived in Victorian era and people will always say, oh, I would love to live in the Victorian era, but you're obviously thinking not me. about it through the eyes of, no, no, no not you. Could, could have been a very tricky period. <laughs> for me (laughs) for all its many inherent flaws i'll take 2021 please i at least at least we're having a conversation about whether some of these guys should have statues of themselves knocked down at the time it was not the statues that were the problem it was very much the guys Oh, you can't oh, be a performer. God. I'm afraid you don't have the requisite skull shape. <laughs> <laughs> it's too hot for this. It's too hot. <laughs> oh man. Okay, when 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 stupid white girls like myself <laughs> talk about <laughs> talk, I, listen, talk about I have to me. tell you, I don't think it was a picnic for you guys either. <laughs> I, is what I would say. I, I seem to remember something about trying to get votes and being run over by a horse. And something, I guess, I don't think. There was that, yes. <laughs> but you know how people sometimes romanticise history. Yeah, the glamour They think, it, oh, well, yeah, if yeah. I lived in this period, yeah. If I lived in this period, oh, I definitely like to live in this period because they're, they're romanticising the extremely wealthy yeah privileged side of that period and I think it's similar in the 80s and 90s because you're seeing those periods through films that Michael J. Fox yeah, yeah, was yeah, in yeah. where he was like an executive in New York and he had all the gadgets and stuff <laughs> oh my god I, I got to the point in the end <laughs> so did you as you got older did you sort of embrace technology I mean you've already explained the um the file sharing system at university. Did you sort of get into it? Yeah, I did sort of embrace technology. We I, we got a computer in 1997. Yeah, uh, that was when we we got a computer, and I can't remember how soon after that. It was definitely not immediately, and it's definitely there's definitely like bit useless bits of information. I mean, I really thought MS DOS would play a bigger part in my life <laughs> as an adult. <laughs> I definitely, if you were like a sort of teenager or like slightly younger in the late 90s, you definitely felt as though MS-DOS was going to have a real bearing on your future. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you, be- you better learn how to program DOS because yeah. it's all, everything is going to be DOS-based. <laughs> and Q-Basic. You better learn Q-Basic and MS-DOS. You're not going to be able to get a job without Q-Basic and MS-DOS. <laughs> Like, what in the name of God? <laughs> and then you got the internet shortly after that, I'm guessing? Yeah, a couple of years a... after that, actually. Yeah, it, yeah. it would have been a time lag. It, would, it, it must have been the early... It must have been sort of like two... It might be the year 2000, but that seems too neat. That feels about... I think we would say we got a computer and then there was a bit of a time where... Everything was on Encarta in terms of looking things up. It was a lot of Microsoft Encarta. <laughs> Man, uh, I've, I've had, this is like the third conversation I've had about Encarta in the last week and a half. 
Oh, really? Oh What's everyone else making? Is, is this a comeback waiting to happen? No, I was talking to somebody who is a couple of years, a friend of mine who's about three years. Again, you talk about minor generational differences. I was talking to a friend of mine who's like four years younger than me, and he had no idea what Encarta was. So, like, he's, he's my brother's age, but my brother would know what Encarta was, but because I had it. Yeah. Whereas, and, you know, it's like, I mean, it was, you know... Imagine if Wikipedia couldn't connect to the internet. Like, yeah. you know, and it was just like, it just had to stay frozen in time at whatever point. It was like, all right, we've finished Wikipedia now. No new stuff. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it was a massive step up, though, I think, before porn, where, you know, you used to, in school, you'd look up rude words in the dictionary. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You could type those rude <laughs> words into Encarta. <laughs> but it was all very, like, a biology lesson type <laughs> type space you know <laughs> you could see a photo of a naked person and that was the it. penis is the male reproductive organ <laughs> yeah. that's what we that's that was as good as it got that was what we were all <laughs> beating off to in the pre-9-11 era <laughs> it explains a lot about us I yeah think. I think, <laughs> a yeah. lot there's definitely something wrong with our generation well, we've got some um, questions here which are used to find out how much of a zenial you are. Sure. And if we can fire these at you, uh, it'll be interesting to see because, as you say, you are on the cusp. Correct. So uh, let's go for... Did you rent videos from a video shop? Yes. I rented videos from a video... Uh, like a local video shop. That's oh, where like we not, started. not a brand. Yeah, and then Blockbusters came along. And my dad is very, like... We're not going with supporting our local businesses. But it turns out, as much as, let me tell you, the Kumar family rented a lot of stuff. We were prodigious video renters. It was not enough to keep the video shop <laughs> My My dad is very much like, no, we'll support local business and, you know, small business before, which is great and laudable. Uh, but unfortunately, in spite of my compulsive renting of the film Pinocchio, it was not enough to keep uh, to keep the video shop afloat. When we stayed with my grandparents in Leicester, we used to rent. The, I mean, this is like this is real, like late late eighties stuff. We the, the the corner shop at the end of my grandma's road had a video shop annex, like that was part of the shop, and so it was like nice. it was all part of the grand tradition of South Asians coming to the UK and being like. These people don't have shops for anything. So we're going to have shops with everything. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like the old Indian and Pakistani corner shops. It was like, if you need like, you know, if you want like, you know, if you want to rent the Mighty Ducks and dispose of a corpse, you can do both of those things. <laughs> and and you can have a pack of Twiglets for the, uh, as a snack. For the ride home from dumping the body that you have just successfully disposed of with the shovel and formaldehyde solution that is sold next to the panda pops like it's it's absolutely it was absolutely incredible and so you used to go to the guy he'd be at the main counter and he'd be like we'd like to rent a video please and it was like he was doing a play for you he'd be like oh Hold on. And he'd walk around. Oh. In my memory, he put on like a hat and was like, hello, I'm the video shop owner. Oh. But yeah, then Blo- Blockbuster came and nuked all of that. 
Oh, you see, because in, in Aberystwyth, Blockbuster never Really? <laughs> you guys are still, wait- Abba still waiting oh. for Blockbuster. <laughs> <laughs> it was all of you depended on spas, yeah. spa right, shops. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and they used to, in the back, they had a wall of videos that were never updated. It was, it was the same videos for 20 years. I, the, the one I always remember is Big Mama's House. Yes. Which I never watched. I never watched it, but I just remember. <laughs> I I have um I used to buy X rentals because they were cheaper. Oh, I've got an X rental yeah. VHS of the Truman Show in my parents' house. That's oh, wow. like if you really, I, you can get, I think you can work out like my exact date of birth, and probably like some like some Cambridge Analytica wonk can work out exactly how I was going to vote in every general election for the entire rest of my life based on the fact that I own an ex-rental VHS of The Truman Show. I remember my dad being a bit snooty about buying an ex-rental video because he was like, oh, they'll be dirty from other people's video players yeah, yeah. or something like that. Yeah, Like as though it was yeah. like computer viruses, but on tape. I yeah, don't know I, if I, that was a real thing. I remember my my parents were very sceptical about it, but I was like, this is great. Also, they were mass, like they were huge. They, the box because, was enormous. Yeah, for, yeah. For some reason, with when, when, like, I think maybe they were like, if we make the boxes bigger, people won't steal them. Yeah, <laughs> like it'll be too cumbersome. <laughs> yeah. When it comes to selling them, we'll squash it all down. Yeah. <laughs> Did you approach peers who were early adopters of mobile phones with suspicion? Yes, I refused Good. to get one. I refused <laughs> yeah. to get a mobile phone because I was convinced it was going to like fry my brain. Mm-hmm. And uh, I refused to get one. I only got I got a mobile phone in two thousand and three mm. when I left. Just after I left school, I, I used to borrow my mum's occasionally when I was going out. My mum would be like, "Take my phone," and it, you know, it was the you know it was the like cartoon. Mm. Bri- yeah. Like even at that point, it was mad. <laughs> Because the, like the the Nokia thirty two ten was actually quite a lithe piece of technology for its time, mm. and so everyone had thirty two tens, and I used to go up with this <laughs> with this huge <laughs> huge brick that looks like you're a walkie you've got a walkie talkie for a nightclub or something like that, and those enormous. Oh, it looks like I should be like calling in an airstrike. <laughs> in like it looks like one of those phones you see with like the th- with like the extra plug in in Vietnam movies. Do you remember where you were when Diana died? Yes, I was at my aunt's house in Letchworth. And uh, my aunt burst in and was like shouting, Diana's died. And I went back to sleep. I thought, I genuinely thought I was like, I think I had a weird dream last night that Diana died. And uh, yeah, I remember exactly where I was. I was sleeping on my, the floor of my cousin's bedroom. We were over at my aunt's house. White Britain needs to understand this, right? White Britain as a whole... In fact, the whole white race needs to understand this. You cannot generalise across black and minority ethnic people, right? You cannot do that. We're not a homogenous block, apart from... (laughs) Diana. (laughs) All... I don't think people understand... I, I genuinely don't think... You know, like, white Britain, people are like, oh, people that... No. White people do not love Diana... Like a fifty-year-old Indian woman, like like <laughs> my mum is like more loyal to Diana than any like than any other figure in my entire life. Like, wow. it, uh, it, and 
a completely reasonable people of colour will go, yeah, I don't believe in any conspiracy theories. They killed Diana. Like, <laughs> like <laughs> it, it's genuinely, it's genuinely astonishing the the esteem by which she sort of held by communities of colour in the United Kingdom. Like, it really is mm. incredible. So, yeah, I remember viscerally where I was when she died. And also, like, we watched the whole of the funeral. Like, like my our house was, like... it we, Our house was sort of in mourning. Yeah. Wow. The only time that stuff like that would happen was, like, in the World Cup. Mm. Like, it was, yes. like, like Euro 96. <laughs> when England played Switzerland, the first game, our entire family was sat around the television. And then, like, the next time it happened was when Diana died. It was so weird. Although the uh, agricultural show in the neighbouring village to me did go ahead. <laughs> yeah, and I remember there were a lot of people going really? like, that's going to be quiet. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and by all reports, I think it was. It was a very quiet, quiet affair. Amazing, amazing. Um, and did you ever attend a birthday party at a wimpy? No. Oh. I, we attended birthday parties at McDonald's. I, yeah. I I don't yeah. think I ever went to a birthday party or wimpy. There was a wimpy in Croydon, mm. and it would always even just walking past it would make my mother very depressed. <laughs> I don't know why. My mum would be like, because we'd be like, can we go wimpy? There's like a sort of fun logo. My mum would be like, we're not going to wimpy. Like it just really bum her out. <laughs> oh. it just, I think it really reminded her of like the mid seventies in Leicester. I think that so she was always like, oh, I'm not going to wimpy. We there was a Pizza Hut two doors down, and so we used to frequent Pizza Hut and McDonald's, but never Wimpy. Yeah. Oh. But that's that's funny because it, <laughs> it, it's now transpiring that the seventies Leicester was nineties Aberystwyth. Right. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god. I grew up in Croydon, which is like, which was sort of Thatcher's, like, one of Thatcher's, like, pet projects was to turn Croydon, it was like, a, it, one of her government's pet projects was to, like, really, like, it, like, it turn Croydon into sort of, like, a satellite town uh, for London. And so, we, yeah. it just got filled. It was like, we were like a Petri dish for every new chain restaurant. We would just get one. And they would see how it would... I, I, this is obviously just a pure conjecture on my part, but I was like, were we part of some experiment? Like the yeah. town in WandaVision. <laughs> like, they, we would get every single, ch- you know, chain restaurant was immediately opened in Croydon. Mm. There was a huge McDonald's. Then there was like a McDonald's drive through that opened up. And like, it, we, we got all of that stuff. Any crap we got immediately. TGI Friday, immediate in Croydon. <laughs> You see, because to me, like, TGI Friday is so glamorous. Like, in my head. It was to us, yeah. Because it was like... Yeah, because yeah, it? it was okay. new. It was. I, rem- I had my uh, yeah. 11th birthday party at TGI Friday. <gasps> we thought, we were like, this is the coolest thing in the world. I'd never seen a Mississippi mud pie before. <laughs> it was absolutely incredible. It was incredible. Did you go into London much? Did you use London as a city? Yeah, we did. Yeah, we did. But mainly what we used it for was uh, Chinatown. We used to go, that, like, like our big treat oh, okay. when we were kids was we'd go to Chinatown. So we'd go and eat at Chinatown. And then we would go to the, when they opened the Hagen Does Cafe. 
Leicester Square. Now, I go past that cafe and I'm like, it's the worst place in the world. But when it first opened, we were all like, this is very, mm. oh, this is very bougie. Yeah. And, uh, you know, because it also yeah. like the packaging looked classy. You know, like most ice creams, it was just like, you know, it was like, the, the it was really, it was the meteor that hit the dinosaur of the British ice cream scene in the mid 90s. Oh, as I, say, I think about it, Hagen Dars, I think, is the first ice cream where I don't think there was a picture of ice cream on the label. It just had the word Hagen Dars, and you went, mm. oh, they don't even It trusted its audience. It was like yeah. a Michael Haneke film. Like it trusted its audience yeah. to make up its own mind about what the ice cream was going to look like. Yes, because and I remember feeling like an adult. Yeah, 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 yeah. Like it felt like a rite of passage. Because it didn't, that, you know, no, I'm, I'm an adult. You now. didn't glow in the dark. <laughs> <laughs> like I remember just those. Like I don't even know what it was. It was just like the orange lollies. Like not they, it. Mm. It had the sort of consistency and chemical content of a calippo, but it was just a lolly with an. And you're like, this thing is like visible from space like i don't think this could be a good idea because it's it's really interesting to me how even though i'm older than you that because of your proximity to london that you might have come across things sooner than i would have yeah possibly because, yeah yeah you know, yeah even though you're younger and i'm fascinated by that because all i ever wanted was to go to a corner shop on a saturday and bump into kylie Minogue. <laughs> that's all i wanted and i thought that that's what london was well, like well the thing is i guess it's still i guess the difference now is because of the way celebrities interact with their fans like the accessibility is a big part of fame now and there is an expectation that people who are incredibly famous post things on instagram and you know you kind of you like I mean, I, I'm sure these are all studios and stuff, and but like you kind of like you might know what a incredibly famous person. I, I don't think this is a good example of it because I think she may actually be a bit more have a bit more mystery about. It. But like, I feel like you know what Ariana Grande's back garden looks like. Whereas actually, mm, at the time, yeah. it felt. I, I remember when uh, me and my friend queued for two hours to meet Chris Barry, who played Rimmer in Red Dwarf. <sighs> At the Wicked Centre, wow. we queued for two hours to meet him. Why? What was the point? Yeah. There was no, there was no point. But it, I... um, it felt like the most exciting thing in the world. I think mm. I did almost exactly the same. Yeah. Chris Barry and Norman Lovett did a tour together, and me and yeah. my friends went to see them at the Ponte Dewey Arts Centre. I was beyond excited. I've probably been about 16, 17. And yeah, we queued afterwards to get their autograph. But that's much better because, like, you got to see them do comedy, presumably. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. We literally just queued for an afternoon to meet this guy. (laughs) Oh, those wasn't fucking insane. (laughs) No. No, he came to do a signing at the Wicker Centre in Croydon. And that was, oh. (laughs) That was it. There was no show. It was bananas. I mean, come I also, this is the most insane thing. They used to have book signings and I met Imran Khan and he's now the Prime Minister of Pakistan. (laughs) (laughs) He was signing books at the Waterstones in in Croydon. It feels like the Waterstones in Croydon, there was a lot going on. There was a lot yes. going on. You know what? I was about to say, no, 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 our experiences weren't that different, but maybe they absolutely were. 
But it's weird. I don't know why these people were coming to like do book signings in the Croydon Wall. I guess maybe it was one that like sold a lot of books. I, I don't. It doesn't. Um, I don't think that it's. It, it certainly it's not at that location. If there is one in Croydon, I don't think there is one anymore in a Wigger Centre. But that location, it was a massive bookshop, and so I guess it was like on the route for people to go. But yeah, like. I definitely met Imran Khan, and he is definitely Prime Minister of, Prime Minister of Pakistan. <laughs> and that is very strange. Yeah. I lo- I'd love it if there was some kind of sliding door moment there. <laughs> A four-year-old kid was like, Imran, you better turn your hand to politics, right? <laughs> it's, it's good to think about what you're going to do after your international career, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, basically. But that leads in really nicely um, to what we'd love to talk about now is um, kind of your your satire work and um, how your career has kind of been fueled by the news. Yes. Um, so it's like, so the MASH report felt like um, it was people from our generation, whether that's Xennials or Millennials. Yeah, sure having a BBC Two topical show that we were in charge of. Yeah. Um, how much, when you were growing up, like how much of what was going on in the news in the late 80s, early 90s, moulded this career that you now I have? I mean, I guess, like, my family is quite a... It's, like, quite a... I don't even know if it's necessarily political, but, like, everybody is very interested in the news, you know? Like, they, they, there's a lot of... I grew up in a house where there was a lot of chat about what was happening in the news. Um, and, you know, I sort of have these like dim memories of the first Gulf War. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, being a little kid and sort of finding out that there's a war going on and it all seems very scary and weird. And, um, uh, you know, it's like, so definitely I remember that. I really, really clearly remember the basically the like litany of sleaze scandals that surrounded the Tory party in the mid 90s you know it, it, it those were really that was really the halcyon era of sex scandals yeah. in the in the early 90s um and then i remember yeah. in 97 you know there was a lot of excitement about blair you know, in my, my house, you know, there was a lot of excitement and anticipation that there was going to be a Labour government. So definitely there was a lot of interest in the news in my family. Um, and so, you know, there's a lot of, you know, there's just a lot of conversation about it. And I think that, um, but I mean, I think in terms of how you, you know, the things that mould your personal political perspective you know I was 16 when 9-11 happened and 9-11 very much was the 9-11 of our generation it really was a it was the real 9-11 moment for us um it really was yeah it was a real it was people don't talk enough about how 9-11 really was the 9-11 of the early 2000s um but that 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 is the thing that shifted everything for for, mm. for all of us because you know it was the most outlandish you know i remember things like the um the oklahoma bombing but this somehow mm. was a level up from that in terms of the sort of sheer outlandishness of it and then you know your relation my relationship 
changed in some ways you know my entire sense of myself shifted after that because you know in the late 90s it was multiculturalism was all seen as something that was it was very cool and it was very exciting to celebrate you know goodness gracious me was on tv and it it was seen as something that was very positive that britain was making room for all of these different identities and again I'm, you know, I'm sure there's lots of stuff I was overlooking, you know, and there's lots of stuff that I just completely missed out on. But that's certainly how it felt being a young teenager. Um, and then after 9-11, the relationship shifted and suddenly multiculturalism was seen as like a problem. And, you know, I, I think that I don't think that people realise sometimes how like, people brown guys of my age like the john charles de menezes story was like had as much of an impact as anything else that happened when i was growing up you know he was a guy who Mm. it's a brazilian guy who through i think some just bad information had become implicated as part of a terrorist thing and the you know and and he was shot and killed by the mayor and after that Mm. my mum was like you know be just be suspicious of everybody you know when you go out of your house and all of those things like really inform I think you know and also when I was a kid we studied loads of stuff about the financial the 1929 crash and the 30s depression and so we spent a lot of time learning about that there was a whole module about it when I did history and then we went back and did it in economics and you know like I was I had a teacher who like encouraged us to read um J.K. Galbraith's account of the financial crisis. And then, obviously, for people of our generation, we got to the theory and then we got the practical uh, in 2008. And so those are all events, I think. Those are like, those are sort of fairly seismic events that shape how you see the world. You know, I was 16 for 9-11 and I was 23. I just graduated when the economy exploded. And so I think those Mm -hmm. are probably the two most important things that happened to me in terms of, you know, my political awakening and my like sense of a political consciousness. Um, Mm. And those definitely. But the MASH report really did feel like when we started it, there was sort of a couple of points where people just look at each other and be like, who is in charge here? Yeah. Because there seem to be, there seem to be no adults in the yeah. room whatsoever. <laughs> you know, like our executive producer is—I think he's probably like eight years older than me. So yeah. he's the top of the tree. <laughs> you know? yeah. like, it was very much like yeah. a show made by people who is, whose political consciousness was formed by nine eleven and the financial crisis, um, mm-hmm. and it definitely, it was very strange because at various points, you know, you kind of, I grew up watching Have I Got News For You um, and uh, the Chris Morris stuff. And at some point you're waiting for an older person in a suit to tell you what to do. And then you sort of realise that's you, you're wearing the suit. (laughs) You're wearing the suit. And the studios are booked, so you better have something to say when the cameras, t- when someone turns the cameras on. Yeah, that's really interesting because it feels like some some really key events during our our childhoods and and formative teenage years 
they had a similar effect to when when you see your pa- one of your parents crying for the first time. Yeah, it has that kind of like oh. Oh, okay. Yeah, right. Yeah, so life yeah, yeah. isn't what I thought it yeah. was, and I'm I'm now going to have to shift the way I am as a person and with with these people, and and similarly to to events and stuff. Um, because I was working, I was working in the travel industry in 2008 Uh-oh. when everything went. To <laughs> oh me. my god! Can you imagine? Everything just imploded. Yeah. Like I was. Because I used to do PR and I had travel clients and it was all very glamorous. And we used to go on trips around the world and take journalists to different places. And we were all, you know, just enjoying our lives. <laughs> suddenly it was like, oh, okay. Yeah, so um, we've basically lost 80% of our travel clients. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, yeah. I, I was an office temp in 2009. And so, one, and the, you know, the temp agency sends you wherever the temp. So I was doing stand-up at night. So I said, I'll do anything as long as I can leave at five o'clock. And... One of the jobs I ended up working for, like Ernst and Young, like for an like oh, okay. uh, doing, and one of the things that they were doing was like they were still dealing with the dissolution of Enron, like in two thousand and nine. <laughs> like we were still handling, <laughs> and so in it was like go, it was like an inception catastrophe within a catastrophe because I had to go <laughs> to get like f- boxes of file documents from the Bank of America building in the Isle of Dogs, and it was empty. <laughs> Like it was a gut, like that wow. scene at the end of the big short when they go in, where he's like, oh, I just want to see it. When they go into Lehman Brothers, like I had, I went into Bank of America <laughs> at a time where they just laid everyone off. And, you know, and so like, I have no chill about that kind of stuff because, you know, because when I was at school, we studied, you know, this mass deregulation. This is what happens if you allow. And then the fact that it all happened again and the kind of cavalier, mm, yeah. irresponsible behavior of a lot of these banking sectors you know it's not that it's not it, it's not different enough from 1929 what happened in 2008 so now whenever i'm in canary yeah. wharf and i'm mercifully really only ever there because i need to change tube trains i have this impulse just like brick a wind like i really do <laughs> like it's not something i'm particularly proud of but i have this impulse to like take a shit on one of those fake lawns like outside one of the buildings like I really do, you know. I really have like so much anger. Yeah. <laughs> has um, has satirising the news has it been cathartic for you in any way, or does it get you even more riled up? <laughs> I'll tell you what. There's two good, good, good things about it. Doing stand up about everything that happened was great because um, you know the people that come out to see me. I'll all feel the same and so we all there is like a sense of collective catharsis in the room because you're like at, at least nothing is this is not changing anything like this is the very definition of an echo chamber I'm saying a bunch of things that you all agree with but just the very act of there being like 900 people and me and we all are like this is bad right just the very act of everybody going, this is bad. Because the problem is most of the, most of the national conversation is taken up by people going, actually, this is fine. And here's why. Actually, it's fine that 130,000 people died. And being angry about it is evidence of like woke Marxism. Like most of, you know, most of the information that you get, most of the national conversation is dominated by voices that are trying to tell you that everything is absolutely fine. And so there is something very cathartic about being able to stand in a room and say, fuck me, everything is fucked, and then have an audience go, yeah, 
Yeah, it is. There's some, there is something very like, and also doing the mash, there isn't, and you know, all the radio stuff that I did down the years, you know, I did a Radio 4 show, I did, um, I, I hosted Newsjack for a while, the sort of open submission Radio 4 Extra show. It, what I will say it does is it makes very complicated pr- problems that are happening in the world into a weekly problem that needs to be solved. And the weekly problem that you need to solve is there has to be a half hour comedy made about this. And so you can you can basically busy yourself. It's like giving a kid like toys, like you just busy yourself. I, I feel very lucky to have done the jobs that I've been doing. Um, and you sort of hope that it resonates with people and gives people some comfort. Um, but I do think that there is something interesting generationally about there's space for comedy about the news that takes a position. I feel like when I was growing up, a lot of the comedy was like, you know, oh, aren't they all as bad as each other? And uh, I feel like the thing that shifted generationally, sort of particularly like post 9-11, post financial crisis is they're all bad, but they're not all as bad as each other. (laughs) 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 And like, it's kind of okay for a comedian. You have to have jokes in it, but you absolutely can have real anger behind the comedy. Like you don't have to fence it. Uh, And I do think that that, possibly is something you know that is specific to this generation of people um because you know our specific experiences were actually they're not all as bad as each other and some of them are absolutely appalling i mean does this new satire does it does it have a role to play in holding governments and individuals to account at all? Or am I putting way too much weight on the importance of satire? You're probably barking up the wrong tree if you're expecting um, satire to shift the political conversation. I mean, what you can do is get people engaged in politics. I mean, that's if there is any social utility to anything that we've done, it's just to make it feel like like make it accessible by making it fun and if you get people interested in politics and that's really the best you can hope for but no I definitely don't think it has a role and I think it's a failure of I think it's a failure of the fourth estate and it's a failure of the actual press in the country when people start going well maybe the comedians should hold people to account you're like no Opposition parties should hold the government to account. There should be a functioning opposition and a dedicated press court that does that. Mm. And which isn't to say that there aren't fantastic journalists doing huge amounts of great work. But, you know, they're sort of being drowned by the sheer volume of idiocy that's being pumped out by papers owned by say recent vaccine recipient Rupert Murdoch <laughs> yeah I, I I often think about the person who had to mock up that photograph of David Meller dressed up yeah 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that'd be pre-photoshop as well they'd have had a long time yeah somebody would have had to like cut out a picture yeah, those oh scissors. <laughs> David Meller's sexual success was is one of the like most you know when they talk about like weird things that happened in the nineties that couldn't happen now you're like surely David Meller now would not be able to get it and you know 
get it as regularly as he was getting it in the 90s. Dressed in a Chelsea shirt as well. He's one of the many characters that if you go to the Wikipedia page for Back to Basics, it really uh, lists everything that came out during that time. (laughs) Also, Major and Edwina Curry were banging each other in the middle of all of the Back to Basics chat, I think. I can't remember if the timelines of those things add up. I forgot about Back to Basics. Oh, well, the, the, honestly, the, the Wikipedia page, someone has sat down and gone, I'm going to really get a, I'm going to get a gold star for this page. <laughs> and then they've put in the legwork and they've just really I know what down. I'm doing this afternoon. Yeah. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. Wow. I needed to look it up for something the other day. And you know those things where you're like, I just need to look at one thing. And then 40 minutes later, you're like, oh, yeah, I'm him. <laughs> Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. But I really yeah. remember at the time it was like, it felt like, oh, this is like the end of an empire. They're rapidly heading towards 20 years in power. Yeah. And it was like, you know, it was like, it was real like Ozymandias shit, man. Like when you think about it, it was real like, look upon my works, you might mellow and fucking in his Chelsea shirt. And it just, it really did feel like, but what's interesting now is you're like, this sort of, there's as much and as bad scandal around now, mm. you know, uh, 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 yeah. arguably like considerably worse. I mean, the sort of um, the PPE contract stuff is feels much more serious than Mella getting his end away, inexplicably yeah. getting his end away. <laughs> and, and like at the time in the 90s, it was like, well, this person had an affair, mm. so they have to leave politics and now it's like the prime minister is like conducting like a one man fuck tour <laughs> of like the home counties. <laughs> You're going to place an item which for you represents or defines the Zenial experience. So tell us, what are you bringing into the Zenial dome? I have brought in the original iPod. That's nice. That's very, yeah. That's very exciting. Really nice. No one suggested that. White. Yeah, white. White. And the buttons are above the wheel. That's the thing that I think, that's Mm -hmm. the one that I think of. Because that was, to me, that symbolised like everything is, like everything has changed. Like, (laughs) you know, because like I had, I I still have. I mean, you're looking at, these are, this is the CD collection behind me that I amassed. Yeah through the late 90s and particularly in the early noughties. And I mean, there's just all sorts of like weird stuff here that I had sort of steadily accumulated. You know, like weird, like recordings of like Jimi Hendrix farting in a toilet in 1968. (laughs) You know, there's like this all sorts of like weird stuff that I, you know, we used to go to CD fairs. Me and my friends would go to a CD fair. Yeah. To try and find like cool and interesting you know, I remember my friend Andy going, you have to buy this CD. And it was the Velvet Underground and Nico. Um, and it was like the first time I'd ever heard anything like the Velvet Underground. And obviously it's like, it's a fairly, you know, you know, like, and you know, like um, he had a, the Nina Simone CD that I then taped and like, yeah. was like, would like obsessively <laughs> listen to. And then suddenly somebody hands you this box and it's like, it has everything in there. Because mm. even Wait, when did you get your i when did you get your iPods? When I was travelling on my gap here, I still had a wallet of CDs. It must have been when I went oh, to university. Yeah. <laughs> I still had a big box of CDs that you uh, that I had, and I had like CD like recorded onto CDR like mixed CDs. 
so that I could have, mm. I could listen to them while I was traveling. So no, it can't have been, it must have been 2004. Uh, when That's I got when I it. associate people first getting them. And I remember, yeah. I, I can name the yeah. two people who had one like immediately. And I remember sort of playing with it and going, this feels magic. Just the way the wheels seem to move when, yeah. oh, it doesn't, yeah. it's, it's, it, felt, yeah. it felt quite creepy almost. How it yeah, it was weird. Yeah, it was. Yeah. And the, the scrolling noise when you had to go around the, the thing, that, that click, 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 click. And there was an option to switch it off. And I remember looking at it thinking, why was I ever switching <laughs> yeah, that yeah, yeah. off? <laughs> it's incredible. But yeah, because it was about 2003, 2004, I got mine. I was doing my first ever PR job in London. And my boss had gone to America on business and came back. And my there were only three of us in the office. And me and my other colleague, as a bonus that year, we got an iPod each wow. from him that he had bought cheaply because they were cheaper in America. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he and he had put on them a load of bewitched songs <laughs> and, <laughs> and French rock. <laughs> a year's job. But it was, yeah, it was incredible. And you felt like kind of a club in a way because going into work on the tube then, you knew who yeah, had one because the, the people who had one had white yeah. headphones. Yeah. It just, I just remember yeah, I it remember like that. shifting. Because I did have, you know, I'd been, I'd been enthusiastically downloading obscure Bob Dylan, like, uh, like B-sides and unreleased things from LimeWire. And so I had like MP3s, but, you know, you didn't, I also was like, I was very, and remained very committed to, where possible, buying things, rather than mm. downloading everything I- illegally, apart from all those. So now, my like, act of karmic compensation is I now have been slowly accumulating all of the Richard Pryor Warner albums on vinyl. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I've done this with things. I've gone, yeah. no, I've listened to that enough that I think... Yeah, suede. You're gonna get ten quid. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. It's so thing. weird. Yeah, because I, 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 I illegally watched basically everything that was on NBC in the late 2000s. So The Office, American Office, Thirty Rock, Parks and Rec, Community, and I've sort of gone back and out of sheer guilt, I bought all of them, oh. like the complete <laughs> series box sets, because of the amount. <laughs> of time I went on like elite like weird Chinese streaming websites because that's the easiest place to get a hold of them yeah. um but I remember the iPod it you know it was like the idea your entire music collection was mm. you were just gonna be able to carry it around and I love you know mm. organized by artist and you could build playlists and it, it was just it, it was it was such an incredibly jarring you know to go in a couple of years from winding a tape with a pencil mm. to Everything is my entire 250 CD collection is now sat in a small box in mm. my pocket. That was the thing that I was like, I, I, I couldn't think of an object that more epitomised the shift in how just the day to day existence of our lives was sh- changed by technology um, than, mm. than that, really. You know, like a tape Walkman is a bit like a CD Walkman, you know, yeah. and I had both of those yeah. before. You know, I had a tape Walkman, I had a CD Walkman, and then suddenly, you know, like I say, when I went travelling, I, I had to co- I had to make, like, Sophie's Choice decisions about which CDs <laughs> I was going to take 
and which you know w- what I was going to put on you know the CDRs that I was going to take you know I had to make real big calls and then um <laughs> you know and then suddenly you're like oh you this is the whole thing this is it it's the, the whole thing is just in yeah. your pocket it was unbelievable I loved yeah. it I, lo- I loved my iPod so much and I then got the when they released the I then got the sort of black one with the buttons on the wheel um mm. and then and then when that broke i basically don't i mean <laughs> james acaster has an ipod still i have an mp3 player and i still i use my phone for most things but there are some things where i like to just load up the mp3 player especially if i'm driving and i can just plug it in yeah there is something nice about having a separate thing that's not going to yeah. drain my phone battery that's that's there for one job. I do still quite like having an MP3 player. I don't use it as well. Certainly, in the last year I haven't. But uh, yeah. I do quite like having a separate MP3 player sometimes to go. Okay, it's there. I know what's on it. Mm. Um, yeah, there's something quite comforting about it. I, think. I, I found my old iPod a couple of years ago. <laughs> Just going to ask if you yeah. still got it. Yeah, I, I, I've still got the white one. Is at my parents' house because I think my dad took that mm. for, uh, after I got the newer one. Mm. And um, I, but that, that I wiped all of that one obviously before I gave it to him. And then when I got, I found the old black one. It's absolutely incredible. Yeah, cause it's like a little it, time know. capsule, isn't it? When you find an yeah. old one. There's a playlist yeah. where I like run "Return of the G" by Outcast into "Birds" by Neil Young, and it, yeah. some, it really works. <laughs> it somehow like it somehow like really works. Um, you this, know, and, like yeah. I'd apparently just got into Joni Mitchell. At that point, there's loads of Johnny Mitchell on that iPod. Yeah, there's one right. artist that's like takes a <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I remember opening one, looking at it, and went, "Wow, this was some real indie landfill days." I remember just scrolling through <laughs> loads of um. Yeah, I yeah. think I think probably when I was at university, there's lots of albums by like you know like the first Killers album, the first yep. Franz Ferdinand album, um, the. Kaiser Chiefs album, like there's loads yeah. of like that mm-hmm. s- sort of generation of uh, Briti- <laughs> British Chiefs and Kas- British yeah. indi- influenced indie bands. K- Kaiser Chiefs, Kasabian, yeah. Hard Fi, The Enemy, all these. I mean, Ooh. I worked for I worked for XFM South Wales for a while, so this was like yeah. I was I was getting these albums free for a long time. <laughs> um, uh, I'll, I'll be honest yeah, with let's... you, I uh, occasionally. Uh, guest present a show on uh, the now-named Radio X, you're still here in hard fire. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, it was... that my days Don't, at XFM... don't worry about it, Gareth. Yeah. <laughs> my, my days at XFM South Wales were quite stressful, and um, I, I still find some of those bands bring me out in quite a... <laughs> like, a genuine, am I going to have a job at the end of the month? Uh, sort of. And the answer to that was, yes, 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 no, in uh, order of months. <laughs> you, you hear hard to beat by hi-fi and yeah. break out in a cold sweat. Yeah, and we're all we're all looking at the MD's office going, he's got a big file and a red pen and... <laughs> Will we still have a job or am I just being naive? Speaking of which, here's the coots. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, this is this is definitely a story for for another day. But I have the audio of the day we found out that we were all going to lo- well that we, the station was going to be sold midway through a show, and um, there's loads of fun and frolicking and everyone's having a great time. And then at like 
8.29, we play, I think, six records in a row because everyone in the studio <laughs> is like, right. Uh, so we've all we've all got a degree to fall back on, guys. <laughs> like it was. Um, oh my god. Yeah. Um, we were we were interviewing Keith Chegwin live on air when the email went round to say that XFM South Wales was going to be closed. Oh no! And um, I didn't because I was having a great time with Keith Chegwin. He was just having a loads of fun. We did a co- we, we did a coconut shy thing in the studio. It was loads of fun. And then I I ushered. Oh my Keith, god! I ushered Keith Chegwin out and said thank you very much and sent him on his way. And then I walked back to the studio. Went in and the presenter said to me, uh, uh, they're closing the station. We're all going to lose our jobs. And I turned around and everyone in the office I had just walked past was crying. But because I had been basking in the glory of Keith Chegwin, who I must say was such a charismatic fellow. I hadn't noticed. Like I'd been like skipping about and having a great time. And I looked back and literally every single person on the floor was crying. And then we played six records in a row, and the company bought us pizza, and that was that was that was XFM South That's like the perfect Zenial snapshot. Yeah, and that is like condensed the condensed Zenial experience. With <laughs> and a year later, I met I met Keith Chagrin, and he remembered that day. And yeah, of course he, he did, poor guy. <laughs> yeah, he was traumatized. <laughs> well, as he left, his his assistant uh, Keith Chagrin had apparently said to his assistant. Uh, they seemed fun, and the assistant went, "Yeah." And I've just found out they're all about to lose their jobs. <laughs> so oh Keith Chegwin remembers leaving. Uh, he was there to promote oh National Chip God. Week. <laughs> so anyway, oh. sorry, that's a terrible digression. Oh, I don't know how we. Oh it's music. My God. It's, it was worth it's it. Why, it was worth it. It's why hard fi make me sweat. <laughs> that's, that's the. That's so the funny. That's, that's so funny. Yeah. <laughs> Is there a trend you regret embracing? Is there anything that you go? Oh yeah, could have done without that. Oh, I mean, probably like, like ironic prejudice <laughs> as a joke. Yeah, like that's something I think we should all yeah. regret. It, it just like the existence of lads mags. Like I definitely mm. have bought like a lads mag, and like you're now you're like, that is terrible. That was like <laughs> awful. Like it, lads mags like set the course of feminism back by about fifty years. Mm. Like it. it, it I always used to think, oh, God, if I ever become famous, I really need to think about what pose I'm <laughs> I remember mentioning this to Ellis James, and Ellis thinks I should go for the two thumbs up. <laughs> On the cover of FHM. Yeah. <laughs> but it's just, yeah, it's, it's that thing of, at the time, even though it, it was quite derogatory and stuff, even for girls who wouldn't buy them, you were very aware that it was kind of a rite of passage. Yeah. That if you if you were becoming a celebrity, you would have to do that at some yeah. point. And I gave a lot of thought to it. <laughs> I mean, if anyone's listening, I'll still do it. <laughs> still... What was your lad's mug of choice then? I don't think I... I to, first of all, I don't think I bought them very often because my mum would never have allowed them in the house. Like, they, I'm, I'm no. uh, 90% certain. But they did just used to be... There was always a copy of FHM in our classroom, mm. which, you know, is mm. like... It's all fine if there is a, you know, if there is, you know, if there's like commensurate publication aimed at heterosexual women, like, and just like dudes with their dicks out the whole time. Like, that's all fine. 
if that that's but for some reason somehow it, 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 the cultural conversation becomes so corrupted that evidence of equality mm. was you know, uh, a lady with her butt out on FHM. And that was like, well, that's this is the thing now, because we're all equal. We can see their butts again. Yeah. Also, I think there was an element with FHM that it was seen as the higher end yes, of correct, those magazines. Correct. Like, there was something more acceptable about it because it was better put no, together. No, the one that I think that about is, like, like GQ magazine. And, Ma- and maybe not Maxim, but, like, GQ. I hate GQ magazine. Okay. Because, like... <laughs> At least, I, I don't know what it's like now. It might, I'm sure it's all very cool now and all that stuff. But uh, when I was uh, looking back on it, what I remember was like all of the lads mags were like, tits. And GQ was like, hmm, tits. <laughs> <laughs> like it was sort of, it, it was all as bad. Like it was all as toxic. Um, and it is really interesting watching all these documentaries reappraising how young women were treated in the media in the early 2000s. But it's weird that people are seeing it in a vacuum as though, mm. whereas actually it's a very logical progression of like mm. half a decade of men just growing up thinking FHM is fine. Because also, the th- I mean, if you want to watch the perfect document of it, of what a lot of people thought was funny the office is the perfect document of it like david brent the reason the character of david brent was so well drawn is that is what a lot of people thought was funny in the 90s Mm. the comedy of the office and what then what was obviously amazing that then happened was the the office is this sort of very detailed ornate you know and and david brent is a very vulnerable person but there's also elements of him that are really contemptible like all the great sitcom characters and then just it just people just managed to reappropriate it at face value again. Yeah. <laughs> and this character is like a parody of guys who think they're being transgressive by being ironically sexist or racist. Then that character then gets reappropriated by those people anyway, and they become like in the same way that Ali G, like the people Ali G was aimed at, ended up just be behaving like Ali G. All the white people that appro- culturally appropriated Jamaican culture were being parodied by Ali G and were just like, Ali G's brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> it, yeah. it, the, the same, like, David Brent is a real, like, time capsule of what a lot of people thought was funny because the idea, I guess, culturally was, well, we've all accepted that racism, sexism, homophobia, transphobia, all of that stuff is bad. So now we can make those jokes again uh, under the collective understanding that... These are all jokes and none of them mean anything. But it's, you know, it was like, it was not good. It was inc- incredibly toxic. And now Ricky Gervais has just decided. <laughs> <laughs> Ricky Gervais has decided to do a lot of those things without any of the without any of the yeah. trappings of the office. We decided to end the show with some very quick either-or questions. Okay, great. So the idea here is you don't need to think too much. We just want your sort of gut reaction. Scale extracts or Hot Wheels? Scale extracts. Wayne's World or Bill and Ted? Oh, now that is Sophie's choice. (laughs) I'm going to say Bill and Ted, uh, uh, specifically for the sequel, The Bogus Journey. Uh, Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey was one of my favourite films when I was a kid. And it's also like... A weird movie where, like, that's how I know what the seventh seal is. 
because a oh, large section of Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey is a parody of the Ingmar Bergman film, The Seventh Seal. So many things like that where you only know because you saw it in a film, a comedy well, film when I, you were 14. Yeah. Yeah. My entire understanding of the world is based on references made in The Simpsons. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Fountain pen or multi-pen pen? Fountain pen. Stay classy. <laughs> BMX or skateboard? I, I mean, BMX, I guess. <laughs> but I wasn't exactly like <laughs> popping wheelies around Croydon Town Centre. <laughs> Gimme five or SMTV Live? SMTV Live. <laughs> Andre Agassi or Pete Sampras? Andre, always Agassi. Always Agassi. We were an Agassi family. <laughs> Tonya Harding or Nancy Kerrigan? <laughs> I'll be honest, I didn't know Essence had added that one to the question list, but that is a that is a fantastic question. It defined my childhood. I was obsessed I, with it. God, I the problem is I kinda of want to say Tonya Harding because that movie has made me sympathise with her more than Nancy Kerrigan. But at the time Yeah, at the right? time, sure, at yeah, the yeah, time. yeah. Yeah, at the time, Nancy Kerrigan, in retrospect, Tonya Harding. <laughs> Walkman or Discman? I actually had both, but I'll say Discman because I, yeah, I used my, I got more out of the Discman. Margaret Thatcher or John Major? John Major. (laughs) Definitely John Major. Of the two, (laughs) my God. Margaret Thatcher (laughs) or Beelzebub is going to be a tricky one. (laughs) But look what she gave you in Croydon. She gave us so much stuff. Look at all the gifts she gave you. (laughs) I should look down and thank her. (laughs) oh and the last one have i got news for you or spitting image have i got news for you yeah i i I feel like spitting image is something i've seen more of in clips but have i got Mm. news for you for the simple fact that have i got news for you was where i saw ross noble for the first time and then spent a couple of years like exclusively going like following him around like me, (laughs) me and my friends loved him so much Oh, that's been amazing. Thank you so much for joining us, Nish. My absolute pleasure. Where can people find out what you're up to next? We should get that in. Uh, Nishkumar.co.uk or Mr. Nishkumar on Twitter. And not TikTok. I cannot emphasise that. (laughs) That was brilliant. Yeah, it's lovely to speak to Nish. Absolutely fantastic. Um, So thanks so much to him for being on the show. On what was... I think I'm going to say it again, an unbelievably hot day. My, my groin was very wet by the time we ended that recording. <laughs> there we are. That's a treat for anyone who's made it to the end of the podcast. Um, right. If you want to get in touch with the show about that or anything else, um, then you can. The email address is thezenialdome at hotmail.com. Um, and, you know, we'll read and reply to everything. I'll read and reply to everything. And Essit will only... <laughs> acknowledge the ones that have been capitalised correctly. Yes, please correct? spell it correctly with the uppercase <laughs> and lowercase as it should be, otherwise it won't get through. Uh, oh, but also, let's not forget, we need to tell people that they can also get in touch with us via MySpace. <gasps> yeah, yeah, you can, and I am quite excited by this. So, what I really wanted to do was only have a MySpace, and apparently that's just not on in the modern world. So we also have a Twitter and an Instagram as the Zenial Dome. But uh, if you have a MySpace account, which I don't, I didn't have MySpace first time around, um, then you can friend us on MySpace. I don't even know what the term is. I think so. Like back in the day, 
I had an account, but I didn't really use it that much. So mm. for anyone who's unfamiliar with MySpace, MySpace was like an early version of like Facebook. Or a late version of Friends Reunited. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Whichever one, ones of those you remember. Um, but it was predominantly used by bands, wasn't it? And musicians. So they could upload tracks and people would follow them and they'd create a bit of a fan base. So that's what we're going to try and do. Um, <laughs> but sort of 15 years after the event. So if you're on MySpace, then uh, the Zenial Dome is where you'll find us. Um, if you work for MySpace and you're listening to this, and let's be honest, you probably are, because this is surely, you know, <laughs> your last shot, then um, we are interested in sponsorship. So um, please get in touch, thezenialdome at hotmail.com, or send us a DM through your own site. So now on MySpace, you can upload tracks, basically, to your page, so music tracks. And what would be great is if the listeners could get in touch with us and give us their kind of favourite Zenially tracks. So stuff from their formative teenage years in the 80s and 90s. Um, please do, because otherwise our producer, Iwan, is going to upload Betty Boo doing the do. Um, yeah, we should say that you and um, when we said we've got a MySpace page, became incredibly excited and suggested a load of records that either were like Betty Boo, which I had, you know, I was aware of, but a lot that I'd never heard of. Some some <laughs> song about a bouncer from the 90s that sounds like something you'd hear in a fairground and uh, all, all that sort of stuff. And um, so we, we need to push his off the list. So please, if you've got any suggestions for songs we can add to our MySpace page or anything else, uh, the Zenial Dome at Hotmail.com or send us a tweet or an Instagram message or whatever the correct vernacular is for um, MySpace. Also, if you've got any suggestions as to what you would like to see in the Zenial Dome next to Nishkuma's iPod, then let us know. Is that it? Is that all our ways of getting in contact? I think so. I would I would love a PO box address so people can send us letters. But then if, if MySpace sponsors us, then we can maybe afford that. I, I would like a teletext page, but we, we can all dream. Um. But yeah, if we're missing one, let us know that on uh, the Zenial Dome at Hotmail.com as well. I think that's everything, isn't it? So, the ways you can get in touch with us, the Zenial Dome at Hotmail.com. It's the Zenial Dome on Twitter and Zenial Dome on Instagram. And on MySpace, you can find us under the Zenial Dome. And just to clear it up, Zenial is spelled X-E-N-N-I-A-L. I'm going to sort of assume you knew that by the fact you managed to find the podcast, but just in case, it's Zenial the next. <laughs> right, that's it for this week. Um, next week, I'm not sure who it's going to be next week because we've got about seven episodes recorded and I don't know what order they've been edited in, but it's going to be great. Thank you so much for listening. Goodbye. Goodbye. <laughs>